Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi, everyone. After three episodes about Teddy Deegan, his murder in the aftermath, we're moving on to Frank Smith. For our listeners who've been following along this season, his name might sound familiar. Jimmy Fleming and Joe Barboza had been telling Raymond Patriarca that Frank Smith was the one responsible for calling unsanctioned hits in the Boston area in the mid-1960s. But there was more to Frank Smith's story than that, and the twists and turns of his tale include more than a few of the men we've discovered this season. Not only the criminals, but one of the attorneys we've discussed a few times, Joseph Sachs. But before we get into their stories, I want to thank all of our YouTube subscribers who have taken the time to leave comments on our channel. Nina and I love hearing from you. I also want to thank the guys over at Capable. They've shown us a lot of love in their recent episodes, so if any of you want to hear more about organized crime in Boston, particularly Stevie Fleming, Johnny Mutterano, and Whitey Bulger, definitely check them out. I'll put a link to their podcast in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for sharing your thoughts and information with us. We also have some new and, let's say, unlikely characters in our story today. The granddaughter of J.P. Morgan, the Rockefellers, and George Lincoln Rockwell, the self-proclaimed leader of the American Nazi Party. We'll also be discussing Sammy Linden in more detail than in previous episodes. Sammy was notorious for being a thief, a bookie, and a loan shark, but one of his more notorious convictions was for performing illegal operations. I can't. And since all roads lead to Maine, Frank's tale will take us there, too. Francis Joseph Smith Jr. was born on December 30th, 1920 in Medford, Mass., to Francis Joseph Smith Sr., also born in Medford, and Yvonne Elbrecht, who was born in London, England. Yvonne's parents were Flemish speakers from Belgium. Francis Joseph Sr.'s parents were both from Ireland. Frank had a sister named Florence and a brother named William who had become his partner in crime. Frank's nickname, according to the FBI, was Boston Blackie. Well, I'll be honest here and say that when we were first reading about Frank in the Patriarchal Wiretap memos, I thought that Jimmy Fleming had made him up as a scapegoat for his own crazy activities. But it turned out that Jimmy was not that creative. Frank was real enough, and his first conviction was on a 1949 misdemeanor charge. And by 1952, he was a member of Harvey Bastani's gang. Longtime listeners will recall Bastani from previous episodes. A one-eyed former boxer who was allegedly an associate of Willie the actor Sutton, Bastani's girlfriend, a woman named Maxine Taylor, decided to turn him in. Bastani had been planning to rob a bookie in Newton who was believed to have $70,000 stashed away in his home, but Bastani was short one man, so Maxine suggested her ex-boyfriend, who was a member of the Detroit Purple Gang. Hey, she was getting a two for revenge on both of them at the same time. Can you blame her? Anyhow, Bastani drove down to Connecticut to collect Maxine's ex-beau, Manuel Orfeo. Bastani put him up at the hotel where they were staying and paid for his expenses. But what Bastani didn't know was that he was being tailed by the cops every step of the way. Bastani, Orfeo, Michael Mandela, and Dennis Litvin Ramondi were arrested on May 5th in a diner on the outskirts of Providence. Of course, the men were also questioned about both the Branks and the Danvers jobs. Frank's brother William was arrested in a pre-dawn raid in Medford two days later. A search of his home revealed three suitcases which the cops seized. One contained six revolvers, a machine gun with a chopped-off barrel, a sawed-off shotgun, and several boxes of ammo. 
Another suitcase was loaded with a complete set of burglar's tools, including electric drills, TNT, blasting caps, cold chisels, hammers, adhesive, and other safe-cracking gear, including three sets of keys called tri-keys by locksmiths. The third suitcase had several pairs of gloves, a clergyman's black hat, a bib, and a collar. The getup reminds me of Teddy Green's escape from Maine. Remember, he was dressed as a clergyman and managed to get past the police checkpoint. The police also found recently stolen license plates and another pistol hidden in William Smith's home. At first, Bastani pleaded innocent to the charge of carrying a concealed weapon and was held on $100,000 bail. But he later changed his mind and waived examination. The judge found him probably guilty and held him for a grand jury. Meanwhile, Massachusetts was seeking to extradite Bastani for the other bank robberies and the motel robbery in Westport. Orfeo pleaded guilty to the charge of carrying a concealed weapon, but the judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. Bail was set at $50,000, and he was held for trial until May 13th. Dennis Litwin Ramondi's lawyer told the judge that his client had only met Bastani 10 days before their arrest. But a cop told the court that Denny had told them that he, Bastani, and Orfeo had come to Providence to stage a holdup. Denny was held on $10,000 bail on a gun-carrying charge. All three men were taken to the state prison at Howard. A few days later, on May 10, 1952, 11 men were picked up as suspects in a string of armed robberies in and around Massachusetts and a series of safe breaks in Connecticut that employed the use of explosives. A collection of dynamite was uncovered at William Smith's former place of work in Melrose. Bastani later claimed that he turned state's evidence because Teddy Green had double-crossed him by committing the robbery in Maine without him. But the truth was that Bastani faced a long prison sentence or even the death penalty for the murder of Arnold Schuster in New York a couple of months earlier and flipped to save himself. In addition to the 11 who were arrested, Bastani also gave the police the name of Robert Duff, a self-styled private eye from Roxbury. On the run were Frank Murray, escape artist Teddy Green, and Frank Smith. They were wanted not only for the Westport Motel robbery, but also for bank robberies in Norwood and Medford. Bastani was also suspected of a near-fatal robbery of a bakery in Worcester. In the following days, the authorities announced that Duff was being sought as a material witness in a $30,000 robbery that took place in April of the National State Bank in Newark, New Jersey. Duff's home was raided by the Boston Police Department, and police caps and badges were found in his home, which the police believe might have been the same ones used in a recent Somerville bank robbery. Frank was labeled as a European voyager by the authorities and the prime suspect in the $17,000 Medford Savings Bank holdup. On May 14th, Frank was arrested in a back bay apartment following a raid on his mother's apartment in Medford where weapons and burglary tools were recovered. His profession was listed as a boxing promoter. He gave an address in the West End as his residence and said he was divorced with two children. Frank Dogie Murray, David Yacobanis, and the rest of the Bassani gang were charged with the $17,000 robbery of the Middlesex County Trust Bank in Medford that had taken place on March 10th of that year. Yacobanis needs at least his own blog post, if not his own episode, but Nina and I will argue about that later. Bail was set at $25,000 for Frank Smith in June, and a trial date was set for July 19th. But Smith's trial was postponed numerous times, including in January of 1953, because of the Brinks investigation. Meanwhile, in New York City, a grand jury indicted Sammy Linden and Frank for the attempted murder of attorney Saul Rosenblatt. The botched hit had taken place on March 10th of 1952. At last, on February 3rd, the bank robbery trial began. 
To the surprise of Smith and his three co-defendants, Yacobanus and Bastani were scheduled to testify against them. On May 13th, the four defendants were acquitted, but none of them were freed. While three of Smith's co-defendants were facing another armed robbery charge, he was facing a possession of a machine gun charge in Middlesex County and the attempted murder charges in New York for the shooting of Saul Rosenblatt. Their girlfriends were also busy testifying against them. Frank's ex-girlfriend, exotic dancer Anna Silver, took the stand to tell her tale of how they were all literally rolling in dough after the last robbery that Green and company had pulled off. And the Stanny once again testified against Teddy Green, Frank Murray, and Bernie Demansky. But once again, Smith skated. In November of 1953, his trial in New York City began. A detective testified that Rosenblatt had picked Smith up out of a lineup at the Charles Street Jail. Two others were facing charges with Smith, Sammy Linden and John Seeley, who was scheduled to testify against Smith, claiming that he helped Smith steal the getaway car that was used in the attempted hit. And here's where we get the first twist in the failed Rosenblatt hit story. The granddaughter of J.P. Morgan, Mrs. Mabel Satterley Ingalls, took the stand. Rosenblatt had been the lawyer of her late sister, Eleanor Morgan Satterley. Before Eleanor passed away, she had made Rosenblatt the beneficiary of her will. In a separate court hearing, Mabel was contesting the will, stating that Eleanor was not in her right mind when she changed the beneficiary of her estate to Rosenblatt. Now, there was another twist that just adds to the madness. Attorney Joseph Sachs, who some of you might recall from previous episodes, he had acted as both defense counsel for Richie and later became a defendant because of Richie. Sachs was involved in a paternity suit with a nightclub singer named Virginia Summers. Miss Summers, who claimed Sachs was the father of her child, was represented by Rosenblatt at the time he was shot in the hip. Rosenblatt withdrew from the case a week after the attempt on his life. Sachs was questioned several times, but nothing ever came of it. On November 21, 1953, Smith was acquitted along with Sammy Linden, who at the time was serving a sentence in Massachusetts for running an abortion ring. But Smith was immediately arrested by New Jersey authorities on old bank robbery charges. Since we promised more about Sammy, should we give a little background on him before we move on to the rest of Smith's story? Sure. Why don't you start with Sammy, and then I'll also share a little bit more about Sachs. Okay. Samuel Linden was born in 1899 in Odessa, Ukraine. He and his family immigrated to the Boston area when he was a child. The first arrest I could find was in 1932 for helping a suspect in a Dorchester Savings Bank robbery escape from an apartment he was hiding in. He coasted on those charges, but in 1934, he was picked up for scalping tickets and taking bets outside of a Red Sox doubleheader. The case was noted in his file, but there was no conviction. The following year, in April, Sammy was arrested for being part of a hijacking ring that had stolen over $100,000 worth of furs and leathers, and he was held on $7,500 bail. Sammy was acquitted in that case, but found himself locked up again in July of 1936 for an armed robbery in Somerville. Once again, the charges were dropped. But his luck ran out the following year when he was arrested for robbing $125,000 worth of jewels from the home of William J. Kennedy. In February of 37, he was sentenced to 15 to 20 years in state prison. Sammy was picked up for questioning just hours after the Brinks job in January 1950, but he was promptly released after he produced witnesses who testified that he was not in the area when the heist had taken place. We'll continue on with Sammy's story a little later, but let's talk about Sammy's defense attorney, Joseph Sachs. Sachs was also born in Odessa, Ukraine. He immigrated to the U.S. in 1904 with his parents, Joseph Sachs and Rose Uchetnik, who when he was just a baby. 
There are some discrepancies around his birth date. One on his father's naturalization paperwork, his birthday is listed as March 12, 1904, and on other documents it's listed as May 30th. But considering they entered New York Harbor on June 1st, it would make sense that the March 12th date is the correct birth date. Either way, he was running for local office and practicing law by 1936. Sachs defended a variety of people from porn producers, inmates, and socialites. One of our favorite Sachs stories is when his 17-year-old daughter eloped in 1950. He flew to Pittsburgh to track her and her 27-year-old groom down, but only found the groom's roommate, who Sachs then had an altercation with. Eventually, they returned from their honeymoon and all was fine. It made the newspapers who needed Facebook or Instagram. (laughs) Tell me about it. I have newspaper clippings about who my grandparents went to visit for lunch and what they ate. The whole thing was so silly. In January of 55, Sachs sued Barbara Bobo Rockefeller and her ex-husband Winthrop for $100,000. His suit contended that he had negotiated a settlement of the Rockefellers' differences in November 1952. Sachs said that Bobo Rockefeller had directed him to negotiate the settlement and promised him $500,000 for the consummation of it. Winthrop Rockefeller had agreed to all of Bobo's terms, but the reconciliation did not take place. Instead, Sachs accused Mrs. Rockefeller of, quote, insulting and scandalous conduct and vile language, unquote. The stage-trained Bobo climaxed the scene by physically assaulting him, her ex-husband, and his shocked lawyer. Sachs further alleged that Mrs. Rockefeller had staged the scene with the intent of depriving him of his payment. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Rockefeller denied the allegations and issued a statement, quote, at Mr. Sachs's solicitation, I retained him upon his representation that he could effect a reconciliation with Winthrop Rockefeller in November of 52, which he was unable to accomplish. He was dismissed upon this failure. A check was sent to him in the full amount previously agreed upon for his services. The check was returned without comment by Mr. Sachs, unquote. Sachs had also previously sued Winthrop Rockefeller, charging him, Virginia Summers, and another man with freezing him out of a TV deal that he claimed that he had negotiated. Let's not forget, Sachs also defended Spike O'Toole during the Georgie McLaughlin trial and one of the mothers of Spike's kids, Dorothy Barchard. Also, he defended Stevie Hughes and Stevie's father in a B&E case in 57 and dad in the DeSisto home invasion trial that same year. Come to think of it, Sachs was juggling more than a few major cases at the same time. And he was defending Tempest Storm, the famous burlesque performer who was suing her married lover from Newton, who lied to her about his marital status and gave her a seven carat diamond engagement ring. And then her paramour threatened her with bodily harm when she refused to give the ring back. A woman after your own heart. (laughs) Hey, don't fault me for my multiple engagements. Sex should have done a better job on Richie's case. He would have saved himself the stress of being pinched for being part of a multi-million dollar heroin ring. As I've said many times, there was always a thread of truth to Dad's story, so I suspect Sachs had at least a small role in that saga. Sachs was allowed to practice while he was out on bail and was eventually acquitted. Okay, let's get back to Frank Smith. Smith dodged conviction in New Jersey and returned to Massachusetts, but on May 13th, 1957, Frank was arrested again, this time on charges of bombing the home of Everett Bixby of Woburn. Frank was picked up in an outdoor telephone booth on Main Street, half a mile from Bixby's house, two hours after the building was shaken by the explosion of six dynamite sticks planted on the back steps. 
The blast wrecked the outside rear stairway, a hallway, the pantry, and kitchen. A long piece of wire used to detonate a cap was found near the stairs. Police said Frank was wet to his knees, indicating that he was the suspect that they chased earlier through Swampy Forest Park. The police chief and two officers identified Smith as the man they saw dash out of the alley near the Bixby home just before the blast at 12.30 a.m. They chased the man, believing that he was a burglar, but they abandoned their pursuit when the blast at Bixby's occurred. Frank told the cops that he was a prize fighter trainer and was out doing some early morning road work, which he interrupted to make a call to a friend. He was wearing no shoes and his car was found parked on First Street, a mile and a half from the Bixby home in front of the house of Louis Venios. Venios had a record for gambling dating back to 1944. It was a family business run by him, his brother and father out of their Woburn home. In December of 54, Louis was brought before the Massachusetts Crime Commission along with Walter Bennett, Vincent Costa, Anthony Pino's brother-in-law, and Pino's son-in-law, Richard Cunningham, to testify about the Brinks robbery. Venius was questioned about his illegal gambling activities and, like the other men, refused to answer any questions. Louis and his brother were fined $1,000 each for bookmaking. In November of 56, Louis was arrested along with 10 others in a mail fraud scam involving dummy corporations. He was sentenced to eight years in prison on May 25, 1957, just 12 days after the Bixby bombing. You have to assume that the Bixby bombing was somehow connected to Venios. Either Bixby owed him money for gambling or Venios believed Bixby ratted him out in the mail fraud case. Joseph Sachs, of course, represented Frank. He made a plea for a bail reduction from $20,000 to $5,000, stating that the amount, quote, should be commensurate with a man's record and should be what he is able to raise. The man's only conviction was for a misdemeanor in 1949, unquote. The probation officer handed the judge a copy of Smith's criminal <laughs> record, and the judge said to Sachs, there is no reason why I should make it $5,000. I'm going to make sure he'll be present. Frank pleaded innocent on May 27th, but was held on $20,000 double surety with no trial date set. This was the fourth in a series of bombings that had taken place in the Boston area starting in late June of 1954 when the home of a boxing promoter named Sam Silverman was bombed. No one was in the house when several explosions took place a little after midnight. The Silverman family had gone to Salisbury Beach for the day and decided to stay in Revere Beach rather than return home. Luckily, the other occupants of the building were also out for the evening. The bombs were fashioned from primer cord and contained either cordite or TNT. The primer cord was set off by a fuse, and a Chelsea police sergeant noted that it was similar to bombs used in demolition work in the war. Four devices were planted at intervals around the foundation of the home. Part of the foundation of the house was ripped away. Hundreds of windows in the neighborhood were shattered. Silverman reportedly had several attempts on his life before this, including a drive-by shooting the year before where his wife was shot. The authorities suspected that it was a New York outfit trying to muscle in on Silverman's business, and nothing seemed to come of the investigation. The next bombing was in mid-May 1955 when the car of an East Boston labor official named Vincent DeNuno was bombed. His son-in-law was critically injured when he started the car in their garage on Saratoga Street in East Boston. This time, ballistics showed that the explosives and wire were the same type used in construction jobs. The theory was that the attack was due to an investigation that DeNuno was conducting into the AFL. Again, nothing seemed to have come of the investigation. 
A little over a year later, another bombing took place, this time at the Medford home of a theatrical agent named John J. Sullivan. Like the first bombing attempt, this one also took place in the middle of the night. Two bombs had been planted, but only one went off. Sullivan smelled smoke and woke up to investigate, only to discover a six-pack of dynamite on his front porch. While his wife called the police, Sullivan moved the package to the sidewalk and turned a garden hose on it. Two cops arrived within minutes, but were unable to disable the bomb before it exploded. Sullivan and the cops were hospitalized, suffering minor concussions, punctured eardrums, and flash burns. A second bomb was later found under the gas tank of the car that was parked in the garage beneath the house. It was not attached to the car, and it failed to go off because the fuse line became defective 30 seconds from the detonation point. According to ballistics experts, if that bomb had gone off, Sullivan and his family likely would have died. What are the chances that those bombings weren't linked? I definitely think they were all the work of the same men. They even all took place in the same six-week period every year. The other thing I'd point out is that Frank's brother had all those explosives when the Bastani crew were arrested in 52, but nothing ever came of the other bombing cases. Frank went on trial for the Bixby bombing in November of 57, but his story had changed in the six months since he'd been arrested. At the trial, he claimed that on the evening of the bombing, he and his friend Louis Venios had gone to a bar in the South End and returned to his apartment around 1 a.m. He decided to do his laundry and then drive Venios home to Woburn. After dropping Venios off, he stopped to call his wife when the police arrested him. He attributed his wet pants to wringing out laundry earlier that night. (laughs) But the story did not fly with the jury, and Frank was convicted on November 28th. The judge sentenced him to 15 to 18 years in state prison. Frank was released from prison in November of 1964, seven years after he was sentenced. In early January of 1965, Frank made a trip to Providence to meet Raymond Patriarca at the Coinomatic. The main reason for his visit was to get permission to put a few extra thousand dollars on the street for his loan sharking operation. Patriarca consented, but told Smith that it couldn't interfere with his people's operations. Frank told Raymond that he was closely associated with George Lincoln Rockwell, the American Nazi Party leader. As a child, Rockwell had spent his summers in Maine. After Rockwell graduated from Atlantic City High School, his father enrolled him at Hebron Academy from 1937 to 38, hoping it might help him gain admission to Harvard. He didn't get in, but was accepted at Brown University, but left to serve as a naval aviator in World War II, primarily in the Pacific Theater. Smith had just returned from Rockwell's headquarters in Virginia and described the physical layout of the operation to Raymond, including many individuals dressed as stormtroopers at the entrance to the headquarters. Smith said Rockwell had intentions of running for the governorship of Virginia as he was well-received there. Raymond also had to suffer through listening to Frank's travel itinerary, which included stops in Dallas and Los Angeles on behalf of the American Nazi Party. Frank rambled on about his trips to Canada and Chicago, promoting the ANP and his desire to furnish funds to them. He even went into detail about how Rockwell intended to avoid tax problems, which included Frank finding a location in Maine where the ANP could open a seminary and thereby become known as a religious organization. And that's how Frank would eventually find himself in Maine, surrounded by Nazis. Later that same day, Jerry Angiulo and Peter Lamoni also visited Raymond. Raymond, of course, had to tell his visitors about his conversation with Frank. And Jerry had to tell them what he knew, mentioning that Frank Smith had a machine gun as he had shown it to Jerry. 
Raymond spread the gossip about the seminary that Frank was going to open in Maine and said it would be called the White Church of America of Maine. But Frank wasn't just focused on his newfound insanity and racism. On March 3rd, 1965, Wimpy Bennett contacted Patriarca and stated that he bought down Jimmy Flemmy and Joe Barboza. He said Frank Smith had giving, been giving orders to Jimmy to hit this guy and that guy. Raymond was pissed off at Frank for giving such orders without his approval and made arrangements to meet Flemmy and Barboza at Badway's garage shortly thereafter. Raymond said that he didn't want Flemmy or Barboza contacting him at the Coinomatic. That makes no sense, considering Jimmy and Barboza were supposedly both picked up on the wiretap at the Coino multiple times after that. Hey, you know Raymond liked drama and intrigue, so who knows what the motive for the elaborate scheme was. As we've mentioned before, Raymond continued to meet with Jimmy even after he was made aware of the fact that Jimmy was ratting to Billy Stewart at the Boston Police Department. Raymond didn't know that Jimmy had also been one of Rico's pet CIs since he had gotten out of prison. On March 10th, Frank and Joe Modica, a.k.a. Don Pepino, asked Raymond for permission to open up a gambling establishment in East Boston. Raymond refused to give his blessing until it was cleared with Michael Rocco. It appears Rocco shot them down. Five days after that meeting and three days after Teddy Deegan was murdered in Chelsea, Smith was also targeted for assassination. Frank drove up to an address on Cedar Street shortly after 12.45 in the morning on Monday, March 15th. He was dropping off a girlfriend, and as they were saying goodbye, two men appeared from a doorway and fired point-blank at him through the window of his car. His girlfriend later told the authorities that the two gunmen ran in the direction of Elm Street and disappeared into the darkness, and she was unable to identify them. Frank was shot five times in the face, the chest, and the left shoulder. Two bullet slugs believed to be from a 38 caliber pistol were found in the car. Glass from his broken spectacles had showered his left eye, leaving him partially blind. His right eye had previously been removed. The police found him slumped over the wheel of his car and rushed him to Somerville Hospital. He was later transferred to Mass General, where he was placed on the danger list. Smith had apparently been able to get off one shot at his assailants. A 38 caliber Smith & Wesson was found in his car with only five bullets left in the six-shoot revolver. A warrant charging Smith with carrying a firearm was issued at Somerville District Court and served to him in the hospital. He was conscious but refused to speak to the police, saying only, quote, I've been a good boy since I got out, end quote. When the officers questioned him about recent incidents, Smith began humming a tune, ignoring his interrogators. Two days after the attack, Raymond told Sammy Granito that he had been interviewed by the police the previous day about the attempted hit on Frank. On Frank. Raymond was disturbed that the police had known about Frank's January visit. He lied to the cops and said that he never met Smith, claiming that he had always had visitors and people coming and going and that he didn't talk to everyone who came into the coin Raymond repeated the same story to Henry Tamilio when he came in later. The three men came to the conclusion that Frank had talked too much when he been, went back to Boston. But according to Special Agent Keogh, the BPD had not heard about Frank's visit to Providence from Frank. As usual, the feds hadn't bothered to inform the BPD either. But instead, the information had come from Jimmy Flemmy, who likely reported it to Detective Billy Stewart. Sammy Granito stated that Jimmy Flemmy had an argument with Frank and was speculating as to whether or not Jimmy was responsible for the attempted hit, but Special Agent Keogh claimed that Jimmy definitely wasn't responsible in any way for the shooting of Smith. 
On his visit to Raymond's on May 3rd, Jimmy also mentioned the fact that Frank Smith had referred to the Italian element, including members of La Cosa Nostra, as guineas. Raymond became enraged and stated that Smith was moving too fast and should have been killed. Fummy made the statement at this point that if he ever did run into Smith again, he would finish him off. Raymond gave his permission in the event circumstances permitted. Jimmy also told Raymond that Frank had a 65-year-old man named Colonel riding shotgun with him all the time. Frank was spending a considerable amount of time at his farm in Maine, which consisted of either 300 or 600 acres. How the hell do you not know the difference between 300 and 600 acres? It was Jimmy. He was probably stoned. When wasn't he high? And I don't think he ever really left Boston until he went up to Maine himself when he was on the lamb in the 70s. A few days later, Henry Tamilio told Raymond that Joe Lombardo had told him that he received information that Joe Barboza, Ronnie Cassesso, and Jimmy Flemmy had gotten the okay to kill Sammy Linden. The reason for the request was that Sammy Linden, who was collecting loan shark debts for Frank Smith, was an ally of the McLaughlins and was bankrolling them so they could continue their efforts to wipe out the McLean group. Tamilio was questioned specifically by Patriarca and claimed he didn't know the source of Lombardo's information. Tamilio did say that Lombardo told him to immediately contact Joe Barboza and Jimmy Flemmy and instruct them to forget the hit on Sammy Linden as he was connected with one of our group. Tamilio made efforts to contact both Flemmy and Barboza, but was unsuccessful in doing so. Yeah, like he put a lot of effort into that search. Hey, he was busy. <laughs> yeah, okay. Lombardo also instructed Peter Lamoni to contact Flemmy and to tell him to forget the hit on Sammy. Raymond told Tamilio that Jimmy had been down to see him a few days before and had asked permission to kill Sammy Linden. Patriarca told Flemmy that he would check out whether Linden did give money to McLaughlin strong arm Stevie Hughes. If Patriarca discovered that Linden did, in fact, bankroll the McLaughlin group, he would okay the hit on Sammy. Meanwhile, the Boston Herald Traveler interviewed Rockwell about Frank Smith. He's the one they refer to as the father, Rockwell said. He's a religious guy. We're thinking of making him chaplain. <laughs> Why do you say these things? These people were all insane. Wait, I've got another great Rockwell quote for our listeners at the FBI. Rockwell was once asked, what's your answer to the rumor that the American Nazi Party is an agent of the FBI to act as a clearinghouse <laughs> for nuts? Rockwell answered, well, they said the FBI was an agent for Bobby Kennedy, too. <laughs> Actually, I have no quarrel with, quarrel with the FBI. I have always found them to be square. We are a legal organization, and we believe with and acting within the law. I suspect there have been more than a few of such ops in our lifetime. Okay, back to Frank. On one of Frank's trips to Virginia, he took up with Rockwell's secretary, Claudia B. McCullers, who was 20 years his junior. The couple were married in Maine in September 1966. They were living in Ellsworth, Maine, where Frank had purchased property for Rockwell's church, and Smith transferred half of the property into Claudia's name. Later that month, Emmy Linden and Stevie Hughes were killed. We'll be covering their murders in the hit parade of 1966 later this season. Smith entertained mobsters and even invited a state police detective to his home for drinks. According to author Frederick Simonelli, Rockwell's wife, Barbara Van Getz, lived with the Smiths in Ellsworth when she was pregnant with Rockwell's child because she was afraid to tell him that she was expecting as she had lost their first child. She remained with them until she gave birth to a girl. Francis J. Smith and Barbara Van Getz were listed on the birth certificate as the girl's parents. 
But things weren't quiet for long. On August 25th, 1967, Rockwell was killed outside of an Arlington, Virginia shopping center by a disgruntled member of the ANP. John Patler, who had been thrown out of the party that April, was arrested. Smith testified as a defense witness at Patler's murder trial. Patler was convicted of killing Rockwell and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Smith's choice to testify would have repercussions. Seven months after Rockwell's murder, Smith and his wife narrowly survived an assassination attempt by the new leaders of the ANP. A neighbor saw a car crawling back and forth on the road in front of the Smith's house and telephoned to warn them. Frank grabbed a rifle. He and Claudia climbed into his black Cadillac and chased the strange car. A gun battle erupted as Smith overtook the vehicle. He and his wife sought refuge behind a dirt embankment. The Ellsworth police reported that a gunman fired 55 shots at the Smiths during an hour-long gun battle near the couple's house. A high-ranking member of the ANP, Christopher Vidnevich, was arrested at the scene and charged with attempted murder. The attempted murder charges were dropped against Vidnevich, who was later convicted of assault and fined $1,000. Smith told authorities that he and his wife were targeted because of their efforts to prove that someone else may have been involved in Rockwell's murder. And the story gets weirder. Claudia and Frank Smith sold their property to Brian J. Seralt on August 31, 1970. Seralt, a resident of Providence, Rhode Island, who had only just began practicing law after graduating from Suffolk Law in 1969. In 1977, Seralt donated the property to Smith's church because of the good work done by and the religious purpose of the Church of Christ in Israel. Claudia Smith set up a trust fund naming Seralt as the trustee. Claudia said she inherited the money from her family who owned oil Stop. <laughs> In the meantime, Seralt and his partner, Paul Schwab, formed Aquidnick Properties and converted an historic mansion on Bellevue Ave in Newport, Rhode Island into condos. Now, where did he get the money? <laughs> the Smith Trust Fund. Seralt withdrew the money from the trust fund to finance the property development. There was no record of how much was taken or if it was ever paid back. Seralt claimed it was only a few thousand dollars. The Rhode Island State Ethics Commission held a hearing in 1989 about Seralt's dealings. The concern was that an elected official, as an elected official, he should have filed annual statements regarding his debts. Seralt did, and the debt holder was Frank Smith, but no amounts or reasons for the loans were given. To add to the drama, Seralt's law partner, Charles J. Rogers, borrowed $25,000 from the, Christ, the Church of Christ of Israel. As a side note, Rogers was also one of the former provident of one of the former <laughs> attorneys of Providence Mayor Buddy Cianci. I can't. This is all getting me crazy, and there is no record of the loan ever being repaid. Well, I've got another twist to share. The Church of Christ of Israel had three cars registered to the Pawtucket address of Patriarcha Associate Albert J. Albo Vitali, and of course, since the church owned the vehicles, they were exempt from any local taxes. Claudia's driver's license wasn't a Maine one, but rather a Rhode Island one, also listed under Vitali's address. There was an investigation into Seralt and his relationship with the Smiths and the Patriarcha family. Frank was served with a subpoena to appear in front of a Rhode Island grand jury. Just before that, a reporter arrived at Frank's house. Frank quizzed the reporter about his heritage and spewed some anti-Semitic trope. He continued on to espouse his white supremacist views before saying that his wife no longer resided with him and that Seralt was a good man. When Frank appeared in front of the grand jury, jury he wore a clerical collar. 
Stop. Hey, I'm only telling you what Rogers Seralt's attorney said. After his appearance, Pastor Smith sent a video by mail to the AG's office in Rhode Island entitled Heirs of the Promise, which needless to say was an ANP production. Let's jump ahead a little bit here. In 2019, Frank Smith was still alive and kicking up in Ellsworth, Maine, albeit blind and partially deaf. By then, Frank was a bishop in his church. He told the journalist that the prerequisites were to join his congregation. You've got to be a descendant of Adam and you've got to be white. The so-called church still enjoyed tax-exempt status and was funded by local taxpayers whether they liked it or not. To the best of our knowledge, Frank is still alive and in Maine. Laura couldn't find an obituary. He would be 101 years old now. Well, if anyone knows if Frank is still up there in Maine, let us know. Next week, we'll be covering the hits of 1965. It will be two parts as we've decided to dedicate one episode to Buddy McLean and Punchy McLaughlin's murders. In that episode, Nina and I will include more about their backgrounds and their crimes than we did in episode 13. We hope you listen in next week to hear more about the hit parade of 1965. Again, thanks everyone for listening and please share an episode with someone and leave us your comments. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.